Please open your Bibles to the 119th Psalm. You'll find the notes of this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text in the back of the notes. Um, and as you turn there, I'll remind you that as we alternate going through a chunk of James, we then go back and go through a chunk of Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 is a very structured psalm. Eight verse units going through sequentially the Hebrew alphabet. Um, the equivalent in English would be eight verses starting with A, then eight verses starting with B, then eight verses starting with C, and so on. And this morning, we reach the Yod strophe. The word strophe is roughly equivalent to stanza or verse when we think of a song in English. Um, this is the letter that in Matthew when Jesus says, not a jot or a tittle, that word jot is coming across as a transliteration in English really from Yod. It's the smallest Hebrew letter. I'd like to begin this morning by reading Psalm 119, verses 73 to 80. We'll have a word of prayer. We will dive in. Your hands have made me, made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, as we look to your word, you teach us in the Psalms how to think, how to pray, how to talk to you in the various situations of life. And as we look at this section, um, we, we learn how to pray, how to think, how to respond to suffering, to affliction. And Lord, I pray that you would comfort those in our body who are suffering, that you would teach us how to suffer faithfully, how to, how to go through a season of trial in a way that is pleasing to you, how to think and feel rightly. Pray that you'd give that grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, last week we began by looking at the teth strophe where this notion of affliction was introduced. And I really think um, verses 65 through 72, the teth strophe, the one we're in now, 73 to 80, and then 81 to 88 really form a, a subset theme of suffering and affliction. Uh, the word affliction first introduced in verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I keep your word. First time it's been mentioned in the psalm. Verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And now, of course, in our strophe this morning, verse 75, I know that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. The same opponents show up. The, the nature of the affliction appears to be the false accusations, the slander, and the potential threat to life that that 
opposes. Look at verse 69. The insolent smear me with lies. The insolent show up as well in verse 78. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. And then we'll look at next week. Look at verse 84 and 85. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. Verse 87, how bad does it get? They have almost made an end of me on the earth. So he's suffering real affliction. It's anguishing to his soul, and yet he is utterly faithful. He's He's simultaneously able to praise God, to thank God for his faithfulness in bringing the affliction and cry out that God would take it away. That's part of the balancing act we need to be able to do as believers. We need to recognize that whatever God brings into our life, whatever he allows in, he means for our good. He will work it for good, even as the people doing it may mean it for evil. We see that tension in Genesis 50 where Joseph says to his brothers, remember they come to him after Jacob has died. They're afraid that Joseph only didn't get revenge on them because dad was alive and now that dad's dead, what might he do? And so they come cringing. Remember what you told our father? Remember what you said to him? And Joseph says, the Lord meant good in what you did. You meant evil. You meant evil against me. The Lord meant good. One in the same event. His brothers have evil intentions. God has good intentions. Joseph is able to see both. That same type of approach is seen here. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to deal with these three sections together. Last week we saw in the first strophe dealing with the affliction fundamentally seeing God's good hand behind it, seeing God's good purposes in it. We saw in verse 67, the Lord has brought this affliction and through it wrought the good fruit of correcting him. He was going astray. Now he keeps God's word. So one of the reasons why affliction can be good, suffering can be good and a good thing from God is through it, God uses it to purify us, to cause us to be more faithful. We saw in verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. And sometimes God gets our attention this way. C.S. Lewis famously said, pain is God's megaphone to grab our attention when the pleasures of this world can so easily distract. And so God teaches us, even the Lord Jesus Christ learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So the fundamental thing we looked at last week is God's goodness in affliction. That's not the only word on affliction, but it's an important one. If you're going through a trial, it's not because your heavenly father stopped caring for you, stopped loving you, or because he's a jerk, capricious. He is faithful. He is good. It is good for me that I was afflicted, the psalmist says. This morning, we're going to see how to pray in the midst of affliction. How to pray in the midst of affliction. And you may notice that we're not going through this strophe verse by verse. Well, we are going verse by verse, but not in numerical order. And that's because I believe this strophe is utilizing a Hebrew structure that's, strangely, it's a Hebrew structure that we call a chiasm, which is a Greek term. Um... What happens, and maybe this is the simplest way to explain what a chiism is, the Greek letter key, we would call an X. And if you think of one half, the left half of the X, it's shaped like this. That type of um, 
literary structures embedded here. If you were to outline it, what you'd have is point A, and then at the end, point A, point B, point B, and then in the center, C and C. This is actually a four-point chiasm. You've got 73 and 80 paralleling, 74 and 79 paralleling, 75 and 78 paralleling, and the center, and maybe this is easiest to see, the center of the strophe has the two parallel lines in verse 76 and 77. Let your steadfast love comfort me, let your mercy come to me. So when, you, when this structure is used, it's, I think, helpful to, to take the two parallel thoughts together. So we're going to look at it. You can think of it almost like peeling an onion, where you have the outer layer, the beginning and end of the strophe. Then you have the next layer in. And when this type of structure is used, the emphasis is the center. It means verses 76 and 77 are the heart of, or the emphasized portion of this strophe. Hopefully that makes some sense. So again, I'm suggesting that working our way in, verses 73 and 80, parallel in thought, and then verses 74 and 79, parallel in thought, and so on, into the center of the strove. That's how we'll be looking at it. So, how to pray in the midst of affliction. In this strove, the psalmist thinks and responds to his suffering in a number of ways that I think are instructive and helpful. First, we see he prays for personal wisdom and faithfulness. For personal wisdom and faithfulness. He writes, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. And then in verse 80, May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. So he in the verse 73, asks for greater understanding of God's commandments. Now, for most of these petitions, and there are six of them in this strophe, six things he asks God for, there's a certain gospel logic at work that I want you to see. Uh, I'll try to unpack this here. So the request, give me understanding, but comes after the declaration, your hands have made and fashioned me. Literally, you, you've made me what I am. You've established me. And in light of that, Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. So you'll see the basis of the request then is that God has made and fashioned him. That's the logic. And so when you're trying to think through this, how, is, how does the fact that God made, fashioned, established him, how does that relate to the request to teach me? And and the rationale is this, God alone can teach him how to live. If God is the one who made him, who made him what he is, then God alone can teach him how to live. I don't know if you've ever ordered one of those put-together bookshelves or anything you've got to assemble, and you ever have that dreadful experience at the end where you've got some leftover pieces, and you don't know what to do with them, but you suspect they're important, right? How, when that happens, do you figure out what the piece is for? You need to go find the person who made the thing, and they get to tell you what it's for. Ikea made and fashioned this part, and Ikea alone can tell me how this part functions. It won't do me any good for me just to guess or ask the part what it feels like being. The one who made and designed the part is the appropriate place to turn to to ask, what is it for? How does it fit in this bookcase? That's the logic here. God has made and fashioned you. He he knit you together in your mother's womb. 
He has gifted you. He's equipped you. He, he has prepared you for this time, for this place. And so when you're in a difficult place in life and you're saying, Lord, how, I need wisdom. I need to know how to respond. I need to know how to act. I need to know what to do. Don't turn to Oprah. Don't turn to Dr. Phil. Don't turn inwardly to your own intuition. Turn to the one who made and fashioned you for such a day as this and ask him. Or, as James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So the psalmist considers God, you have made me the way I am. You have established me. You've put me here. You've put me in this affliction. You are going to need to teach me how to live in it. I might walk according to your commandments. That's the logic and the rationale. Because God made and fashioned him, then God alone can teach him how to live. This is the same logic we see at work in Psalm 95, 6 through 7. You know this. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. How effortlessly the, mo- the, the metaphor of maker shifts into shepherd, the one who leads us. So he asks for personal wisdom and faithfulness precisely because God alone is the only one who can tell him. God is the only one who can instruct you how to live in this painful, difficult, challenging world. So he asks for wisdom. Give me understanding. Now look to verse 80. Similar lines, prayers for personal holiness, for wisdom, for faithfulness. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. See, the outer, the outer layer of this strophe is a concern for personal holiness, a concern for personal wisdom and faithfulness. I, I, I want to live and act rightly in this difficult time and place. He wants a blameless heart that he may not be put to shame. So here the basis of why he wants a blameless heart is he does not want to experience shame. Does that make sense? I don't want to experience shame, so can you give me a blameless heart, O Lord? Now there's an irony here because he's experiencing a lot of shame from his opponents, but clearly that's not the shame the psalmist has in mind. The logic is, I don't want to experience shame before you. It may precisely be because he's blameless that his opponents mock him and deride him and try to shame him. But the gospel logic at work here is that a blameless heart is an unashamed heart. Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. His concern in dealing with enemies who are shaming and mocking and slandering him is, Lord, if my heart is blameless before you, I will be unashamed. You can think of any biblical examples. What comes to my mind, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you don't bow down and worship, we're going to throw you in this furnace. Our God can save us from the furnace, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship your statue. You're unashamed. So he's concerned, and he asks the Lord that he might have a blameless heart because he wants to stand before the Lord without feeling shame. That's, that's a good goal in a trial. I mean, I, I remember some of the trials I've gone through thinking the same thing. This trial is difficult enough, Lord. I don't want to be at odds with you. I, I want to be fully at peace and reconciled with you. So he prays, give me, may my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. So, so the outer rim of this strophe is a prayer for personal wisdom 
and faithfulness. Next, for encouragement of other believers. And this is just remarkable. So often when we're in a trial, we can focus on ourselves. Because they're difficult. We're going through suffering, and it's hard. But here, both in um, verses 74 and 79, who comes into focus? Other people named those who fear you. You see how that parallel, 74? Those who fear you shall see me. Verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me. In both instances, he's thinking about this other group of people and how they're going to relate to him. It's remarkable. He's suffering affliction, and in his affliction, he's thinking about how that might encourage other believers. One of the things you and I can do when we're going through a difficult time is to look at the bigger picture, get our focus off of ourselves exclusively, and give thought to how God might use this in the lives of other people. Verse 74, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. Verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. If we saw two other reasons why affliction can be a good thing, it can correct our straying and it can instruct us. Here's another reason why affliction can be a good thing from God. It can encourage other believers. Strangely enough, them watching others go through being faithful, God being faithful to them is greatly encouraging. And so he's giving some thought to that as well. He wants, in verse 74, to be a visual testimony to other believers. In verse 74, he wants to be a visual testimony to other believers. Let those who fear, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. Because I have hoped in your word. Now again, what's the logic? Normally, we wouldn't think it's something for people to rejoice in to see you going through a hard time. But there's an implied logic. They're seeing him not just go through affliction, but they're seeing God be faithful to him going through affliction. They see him being faithful to the Lord. We saw that in the last strophe. The insolence smear me with lies, verse 69, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. So others who fear and know Yahweh, others who fear and know the Lord, are aware of this slander campaign, this attack campaign. They're seeing the psalmist respond with holiness, faithfulness to God, and they're seeing God uphold him. They're seeing God keep his promises to him, and they find that encouraging, and in that they rejoice. They're not rejoicing just because he's going through a hard time. And, and think about it in your own experience. When you see a saint suffering faithfully, God's grace upholding him. I mean, think of, think of how faithfully Ron walked his course faithful to the end, how God's grace upheld the Ludwigs in so many ways, through so many trials. Do you not rejoice? I do. I say, what an amazing God whose strength is perfected in our weakness, who glorifies himself through clay pots. And I rejoice for Ron's faithfulness and others who endure. It's one of the reasons I like reading Christian biographies. I'm reminded both of the faithfulness of those who've gone before and God's utter faithfulness to them. I mean, take the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that I just cited. How encouraging is it to see them be faithful to God and God respond in upholding them? We rejoice. If you're going through a valley now, 
Consider that God might use it and your faithfulness to encourage others. He may be about more than simply teaching you something or correcting something in you. He might be using you to strengthen and encourage others. The psalmist here gives thought to that. I think he takes comfort in that. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. You're blank here. The basis, we ought to rejoice in the faithfulness of others. We, we ought to be encouraged by it. Paul was. Listen to Romans sixteen nineteen. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. John writes in first John chapter in second John one four, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And in third John chapter one verses three to four, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified of your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. And I think the greatest test of our walking in truth is what do we do when times get tough? And so when I see people in our body, when I see Christians being faithful in trial, I, 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 I rejoice. I praise God. And so consider that in your trials, God might be using it to encourage others. It might be about more than just you. Which means then the rationale is our personal faithfulness has corporate results. There's a flip side to that. God can use your faithfulness in a trial to encourage others. It means that how you respond to a trial is about more than just you. For good or for ill. Your failure, your backsliding, your grumbling and complaining in a trial can equally have corporate results. Psalm 73. The psalmist speaks about his struggle with being envious of the wicked and how close he came to saying it's pointless, it's worthless, in vain have I been serving God. What draws him up short is this thought. If I had said this, if I had said I will speak thus, verses 14 and 15, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What kept Asaph back from saying, you know what, this is, this is pointless. We always get the short end of the stick. Is the thought of his betrayal of the generation of believers. So consider in your suffering how it might affect others, how God could use it to encourage others. He wants to be that example. If I'm going to suffer, at least let me encourage other people in it, Lord. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. And they're going to see his faithfulness. They're going to see someone suffering, trusting God, and they're going to show a God who is trustworthy. That's the rationale. It's not making much of him, but rather, as I rely upon the Lord, the Lord will be seen to be reliable. And I can model that. I can, I can be, you can be an object of showing God's Faithfulness, as you rely upon him. We ought to rejoice in the faithfulness of others, and our own faithfulness, personally, has corporate consequences. Corporate consequences. He wants them to see what's going on with them, and he wants them to rejoice. But he wants to do more than that, because in verse 79 he writes, Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. 
In 74, he wants to be a visual testimony. Here, he wants to be a vocal testimony. Now we're going beyond simply an example to actually teaching and instructing the testimonies of God. He wants to be a vocal testimony. Let those who fear you turn to me, attend to me, that they may learn or know your testimonies. And again, you see that the things he's requesting don't just stop at him. He wants God to instruct him, but that's not the end in and of itself. He, he wants to keep and obey what God has instructed, and he wants to pass it on to other people. He wants to be a conduit of grace, not simply a reservoir. He wants to encourage them to be faithful also. That's, that's what he wants to do. They see him, in verse 74, hoping in God's word. He wants them to turn to him so he can say, you too, likewise, hope in God's word. You too, trust the Lord. And he will show himself trustworthy as well to you. He wants to encourage them to be faithful. And and the scriptures, again, make the same type of reasoning. If you turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. You, you probably know of Hebrews 11 as the hall of faith. The author of Hebrews has trotted out over a dozen examples of Old Testament saints being faithful to God and God showing himself trustworthy and faithful to them. And after giving all these examples, he starts chapter 12 this way. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are the witnesses? Well, the people he just named. Abraham, Isaac, Moses, Jephthah. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He goes from their faithfulness to the ultimate faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He trusted God to go to a cross, and was God trustworthy in his case? Yes, because Jesus lives and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses to testify to God's faithfulness, I mean, it's just picture them all. I trusted God and he was faithful is what they're saying. And ultimately with the example of Jesus trusting God, faithfully going to the cross. Won't you trust him as well? Let us run with endurance the race. that is. It's the same logic that's implied here. They're going to see me trusting you. They're going to see you be trustworthy. They're going to turn to me. They're going to listen to me. And I'm going to encourage them to trust you also. God can do that through affliction. God can do that through affliction. The blank here, the rationale. Believers should listen to the faithful. Where you see people trusting God and suffering well and being faithful, you should listen to them. You should want to learn from them. You should be paying attention to them. That's, again, the logic of Psalm 40, probably my favorite psalm. Um, Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. 
He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. He set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. So notice, I I waited on God. I trusted on him. Did God show up and prove trustworthy? Yes, he did. He pulled me out of the pit, put me on a secure footing. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Same logic. Oh, you trusted God in a difficult place. And God was trustworthy and he delivered you? Yeah, tell me about it. That's, that's the rationale. It also means God may want you to speak of his faithfulness in your suffering to others. If you want God to comfort, deliver, help you in your difficulty, be ready, be desirous to tell others about it. God has more in view than just you. It's bigger than just you. And so, so here in this psalm, in these two verses, 74 and 79, he's thinking about other people, those who fear God and how his current trial might relate to them, how it might be an encouragement to them, how it might be an occasion for him to instruct them. Now we'll see, he absolutely is worried also about himself and his own sufferings. Next week's strophe in particular focuses on that. But along with that, in addition, is this other concern for others. It's not wrong to say, help, get me out of here. But we need to be able to say more than help, get me out of here. We need to be able to say some of the things that we're learning this morning. So he's first prayed for personal wisdom and faithfulness. Then in the next layer, for the encouragement of other believers. Now, third layer in, verse 75 and 78, he's praying for the trials themselves. He's thinking about the trials themselves in two opposite ways. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Verse 78, let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I'll meditate on your precepts. So he's thinking about the trials themselves, the affliction themselves. One, as it relates to the Lord in verse 75, he's thinking of the affliction. And then he's thinking of the very people who are the affliction, the insolent in verse 78. For the trials themselves. So in verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We see he confesses God's faithfulness in afflicting him. This again is a, somewhat of a repeat of what we saw in our last strove. But this is an important truth to hold on to. In, this, in these two verses, he is both indignant at, frustrated with, vexed by the human instrument of suffering and God, you're good. You're faithful to let this happen. He's able to say both. And that's the challenge for us. Believing in the sovereignty of God does not mean you just think everything's great. Full stop. It means God has good purposes, good plans in everything. And there can be some things we hate and abhor and want stopped. And there's no inherent conflict or contradiction to holding those two positions. I know that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Make no mistake, it's not that good things come from God and difficulties come from Satan. God is sovereign over it all. Now we've already seen the basis. The Lord thus corrects and instructs. Those are the blanks in verse 67 and 71, that those are good. And ultimately why he can say it's faithful is this, the rationale. The rationale for this 
confession of God's faithfulness is that growth in Christ is better than temporal comfort. You can only say it's good, you've been faithful, if the thing you get because of it is more valuable to you than your current present comfort. I mean, we we all undergo painful things. You go to the dentist and you get a shot and you put up with some really uncomfortable noises and smoke smells and it's not a pleasant experience, but, but you do it because you value on the other side of it your tooth not aching anymore, right? You get something better. I, I would rather have teeth that don't ache than not have to sit in a dentist chair. Now, some of you may have a different view on that equation, and that's, that's fine. But we do this in life in many areas. And so the psalmist can look at how God is teaching him and instructing him and purifying him. And now we saw here, giving him an opportunity to encourage others. And he looks at all of that. I can be more faithful to your word and I can know your word better and I can be an encouragement to others. Okay, that's better than having it easy right now. It's better. In faith, so that's the logic of how can God be faithful if he says he loves us, if he says he cares for us? How can God be faithful and afflict us? Because through the affliction, he does these good things. Hebrews 12, every parent disciplines their children. Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. God is faithful in bringing affliction because he gives us better things. He gives us better things. Growth in Christ is better than temporal comfort. Okay, so that's his first confession. We need to be able to say that, and we need to not feel guilty, as he feels no guilt, as he prays against the human instruments of his affliction. God, you're faithful in bringing this affliction, and then he prays against the instruments of the affliction. Verse 78, let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood, As for me, I'll meditate on your precepts. Again, the challenge for us is to be able to say all that is said. You you can cry out for vindication. You can cry out for uh, the comeuppance for your um, tormentors. That's fine. As long as you can pray these other things as well. He prays against the human instruments of his affliction. Now, he's asking for only what is just. He wants them to be ashamed. He's already talked about how he will be unashamed. And his heart is blameless before God, but he wants them to experience shame. Why? Well, because they've acted shamefully. It's shameful to slander, to falsely accuse, to harass. So he is asking for a fitting response. See, their goal in slandering him is that he might feel shame, that he might be lowered in the eyes of other people. And this really can be a life-threatening situation when you're in a political climate with a king. Again, we think of Daniel, as a possible author, Nebuchadnezzar, if he hears too many bad reports about you, bad things can happen to you. So it's not simply your reputation. It's not simply, oh, people are laughing at you. We see in verse 70, 87, they've almost made an end to me on the earth. This could really put his life in peril. This could be real life and death danger through these false accusations. And so they've acted shamefully, and they're slandering of him, and he's praying. So if they've acted shamefully, bring that shame upon them. May they bear their shame. 
May they be seen to have acted shamefully. It's just justice he's asking for. This isn't some vendetta. They've acted shamefully. Let that shame come upon them. And what's the rationale? The rationale is that God is just and will judge rightly. He's asking this of God because he's confident that God is just. Even as injustice is happening. Even as they're falsely accusing and slandering him. He's praying this way. And he's not ashamed to pray this way because he's praying basically, oh, Lord, do what is right. Do what is just. And he can pray that way because he knows the Lord is just. This is how Jesus was able to endure suffering. I mean, this is, this is the confidence we need to have to enable us to endure suffering. I can put up with mistreatment now because I'm confident God will balance the scales in the end. That's the rationale. Jesus was able to endure suffering, according to 1 Peter 2.23, for precisely this reason. Why was it that Jesus didn't strike back when they hit him? Why was it that Jesus didn't tear into them verbally when they insulted him? 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges Justly. Wanting justice is not wrong. Taking it to your own hands so that you become the judge is. Jesus is saying in essence, if my father thinks it fitting and good for their judgment to delay and wait, I will trust him. If he's going to let them get away with mocking me and scourging me and striking me, and he determines it good to delay justice, So be it. I trust him. The psalmist here, you brought this in, Lord, but you're just. I know you're just, so I'd like you to pour out justice now. But the very fact that he's not taking it into his own hands and taking it to God's throne indicates a trust in God's timing. It's nothing wrong with you wanting vindication. Tell your father disembodied souls under the throne of God in the book of Revelation cry out, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? There's nothing wrong in the desire for justice in and of itself. Are you willing to trust God with it? Are you willing to take it to God or are you going to take it into your own hands? That's the issue. That's the question. The desire for it is not a wrong thing. If that's all you're consumed with, that's a problem because you need to be able to say all the things going on here, not just avenge repay. But if you can say that and say, God, you're good and you do good, and I know that you've done good to me in this. And if you can think beyond yourself to how it might affect others, I think you're, I think you're fine. You're in a good place. You're in a good place. Rationale, God is just and will judge rightly, which brings us then to the center and really the emphasis of this stanza, verses 76 to 77. Excuse me. 76 to 77. It's the heart of the strophe. Prayer for divine comfort and grace. Divine comfort and grace. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. This is the deepest need and the deepest emphasis of this section. It's important that he considers how he might be faithful and blameless before God. It's important that he considers other believers. 
It's important that he think rightly about his trials, both God's hand in it and the wickedness of the men doing it. But what he needs most is divine comfort and grace. The ESV translates the Hebrew chesed, God's loving, covenant, loyal love. This is the love that's only ever spoken of directed to God's covenant people. God loves the birds. He loves creation. He loves everyone. He loves all sorts of things. But this word is reserved as his, his loyal love, or you can think of his family love, in the same way that I love people in this body, but I love my wife, I love my kids in a different way than I, than I love others here. God's term for his gospel love, his love for his covenant people, this is the term here. And that's what he wants to come to him. He deeply needs God's divine consolation. Consolation. What's the basis? Well, the basis is this. God's covenant-keeping love is our great comfort. God's covenant-keeping love is our great comfort. When you're discouraged, what's going to comfort you? And sometimes, you know, I might be tempted to think what's going to comfort me is watching some TV or some Ben and Jerry's. What's comfort me might be. And you can find some comfort in some of those things. I think there's a comfort that comes from rest. But ultimately, our comfort needs to be in the God who keeps his promises and the promises the promise-keeping God has made. What's my comfort? That Christ will never leave or forsake me? My comfort is that God is for me, therefore who can be against me? My comfort is he will never let me slip through his hands, but he will hold me fast. My comfort is that God has promised that those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish. This is the ultimate grounds of our comfort. In your affliction and your suffering, find your comfort, seek your comfort, ask the Lord to comfort you through his covenant promises. This has been a dominant theme in this Psalm itself, verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Verse 64, the earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. So I think maybe he's praying something, Lord, let me believe. Let me so believe your promises that I find comfort and receive comfort through them. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. God has made such lavish, remarkable, over-the-top promises to you and to me that if we really were to believe them and think about them, I mean, let, let me stack some up. You're going to inherit the world. All of it. The kit and caboodle. Whole thing. Milky Way galaxy. You're going to inherit it all. It's all for you. You're going to rule with Christ. You're going to judge angels. You're going to be called brothers and sisters of Christ. He's not ashamed to call you as brothers and sisters. You're going to reign forever with him. He's given you every spiritual blessing in heavenly places reserved for you where moth does not rot and thief does not steal. Do I need to go on? These eternal covenant promises 
should give us comfort when the transient temporal things like our health or our job or our family, things that really hurt. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus because he loved them. I'm not trying to say the sufferings of this world aren't real sufferings. Of course they are. I'm saying the promises of God are so much greater that if we knew what was good for us, we would turn to them. Oh, Lord, give me comfort through your promises, your gospel promises, your covenant promises to me according to your word. Second, the rationale. The rationale, slaves of Christ can trust his faithfulness. Slaves of Christ can trust his faithfulness. If you are in the right relationship of God, the relationship by faith where he is your Lord and you are his servant, where he is your father and you are his child, if that's your relationship, you can count on him and trust on him to keep his word to you. God will never prove to be unfaithful. We may. He will not. You can be counted on. So if you're not sure if you're in a right relationship with him, that's a separate issue. But if you are, he is your God. You are his subject. He is your Lord. You are his slave. He is your father. You are his child. If you've come to him through faith in Jesus Christ, you can utterly count on and trust in his promises to you. Find comfort in them and consolation. And finally, he deeply needs also God's divine compassion. God's divine compassion. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. The basis of this request, he's facing imminent death, and he needs God's grace to live. He's facing imminent death, he needs God's grace to live. Verse 87, I don't think this is hyperbole, They have almost made an end on the earth of me. He's in real peril. Give me me some grace that I live. I don't want to die here. But that indicates a radical understanding. I want you to get this. God has made all those promises to you. Eternal life, reigning with him, inheriting the universe. But he has made no promise for your very next breath. He owes you not anything in this life now. He's asking for grace that he might live. What that means then is God does not owe us temporal life. God does not owe us temporal life. It's a grace. If the psalmist doesn't die, is it justice or grace that keeps him alive? It's grace. And grace cannot be owed or obligated. And yet, if we're not careful, we can tend to think it's not the prosperity gospel we're in danger of. We're in danger of the prosperity gospel light. And what the prosperity gospel light says is if you're faithful and you do your devotions and you help in Awana and you read your Bible and you're a good person, life will be pretty smooth. And you won't get the cancers and the car crashes and the family deaths. And you won't get the big, awful tragedies. 
And if you think that, then when the big, awful afflictions come, you're going to be tempted to think, God, what happened? You let me down. We need to get it into our heads that if, if, if I or my family die on the way home today from church, God has done me no wrong. Oh, there'll be tears. There'll be weeping. But God has done me no wrong. He's asking for grace, not justice. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. God does not owe him life. And that's partly why he can see the goodness of God in his affliction. Because God doesn't owe him an easy life either. As much as God has promised us eternal rewards and glories and joys, he has not promised us an easy time in this world. In fact, Jesus says in this world, you will have tribulation and suffering. Paul says all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. So this is part two of how to be thinking in difficult times, how to pray in difficult times. We'll look at the final section next week, but I just pray that God would give us the grace to think these thoughts, to pray these prayers. Our closing song focuses on the comfort and the goodness of God in affliction. Please stand as I call the worship team up and we sing our closing song.